welcome back to another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. This is a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they are doing. I'm Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated, which provides management, publicity, and related services. If I can help you with your music career, whether that's becoming a client or simply doing a private one-on-one online video consultation, do get in touch. I have been helping artists from around the U.S. for over 18 years now and would love to help you as well. Just write to me via the email address podcast at nhte.net. If you are a fan, thanks so much for listening and make sure you're signed up for the weekly email newsletter. You can gain access to that by putting your email address in the sign-up box on the show website nhte.net. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Los Angeles, my guest is a vocalist, songwriter, guitar player, producer, vocal arranger, artist mentor, and coach. He was the lead vocalist and acoustic guitarist from 2006 to 2020 for five-time Grammy-nominated pop supergroup Ambrosia. He has been a member of the Elton John Band and the Michael Jackson This Is It Band. He also worked as a vocal and performance coach, vocal arranger slash producer, and first-line judge on seasons 10 and 11 of American Idol. As a session vocalist, he has sung on many major records, commercials, and motion picture and television soundtracks. You've been hearing an original song of his called Loss, Hope, Faith. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Ken Stacy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, everybody. So glad to be here. Yeah, Ken, I'm so excited to have you on the show. This is long, long overdue. We obviously have lots to talk about, but let's start off first by having you share with the audience all about the song of yours that was just playing called Loss, Hope, Faith. Oh, well, thank you, Bruce. It's so, so wonderful to be here with you. And uh, yeah, that song is a song that um, I need to release. So (laughs) a song that will be out there soon, Um, but I'm glad to share it on the show and give everybody a a sneak peek at it. This is a song that I wrote really during the pandemic, uh, well, the beginning of the pandemic, and also coming out of everything that was going on with the protests and uh, Black Lives Matter and a variety of things that were happening during that period and obviously are continuing to go on today. And it was kind of a combination of everything. It just felt like as a country, so much was going on at that period. Again, still is in so many ways. And I wanted to make a statement about it and uh, share my thoughts. And I didn't quite know what to say. And then one evening, I had a track, an EDM track that I was kind of experimenting with. I hadn't done an Mm. EDM track before, and I wanted to try my hand at it. So I was doing the track, and I was like, well, what am I going to put over this? And my wife and I were watching, it was a PBS special about uh, back in the 70s, I believe it was, um, out of Chicago. I think it was out of Chicago. It was a special about, um, we all know Soul Train. This was, I think it was just called Soul. And it was a special about this public television series that was put on and really focused on 
parts of our community and the music community and community at large that at that time were simply not getting the airplay on regular radio because they were people artists of color Ah. or a variety of other reasons and the show specialized in really giving a voice and a platform and like the bands that came on that show like earth wind and fire donny hathaway the, the list goes on and on so many artists that could not get on those kind of shows in regular media were came onto that show and it was incredible and it ended up lasting for quite a few years uh before nixon pulled all the funding for it to make it go away wow yeah so i was so touched by one episode where they had a choir doing an acapella version of sometimes i feel like a motherless child which was written back in 1899 by william e barton and it just hit me like a thunderbolt. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's what I'm going to sing over the over mm. that first part, over that first stanza. So you'll hear that sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And I thought that just so encapsulated, I think, the, the feeling and the emotion of so many people in this country, um, in this nation, feeling that they feel alone, they feel isolated, they don't feel heard, they feel marginalized. And that really resonated with me. And then as I was working on that, as it began to go into that kind of lift into the what you might call the chorus, I was like, well, what can go here? And I wanted this to have an arc, like an emotional arc. Mm-hmm. So the first was, you know, as in the title of the song says, Loss, Hope, Faith. So sometimes I feel like a motherless child really to me encapsulated the sense of loss loss of freedom, whether you're a person feeling marginalized in this country or whether you're one of all of us, you know, stuck and losing their job, not knowing how to make ends meet during the pandemic, uh, not knowing how to deal with all the crazy information that was coming out at that time. So that encapsulated that, but I wanted it to then move into something that felt more positive, like there could be eventually, as they say, all things pass and eventually uh you know the sun will come out again yeah and hence i heard here comes the sun by george harrison mm-hmm. so then i put that in and then there was this really interesting part coming out of the chorus where i used these effects to kind of reverse and slow down the tempo of the music which ended up garnering a really unique and emotional quality in the track and i was thinking well what can i put here and I'm, I am a huge Donny Hathaway fan. He's mm. arguably my very favorite artist, favorite singer of all time. Wow. And the song that he sings, Someday We'll All Take It From Me, Someday We'll All Be Free. I thought, there it is. There it is. That, that is the finishing touch. That's the thing that speaks to me. So that's how the song was created. It was just a very interesting experiment on a musical level and then an experiment on bringing these this emotional art together there are some original lyrics in there leading into the here comes the sun section that to me i just wanted to really express the the heartbreak and the heartache of of each of us as we struggle through the challenges of life whatever that may be so that's how it came about 
and now I've got to I've got to do a video for it because you can't release a single without a video anymore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's that's what that's about. Well, speak to the listener right now who is an aspiring performer or maybe a young songwriter, I should say specifically, because when you sent me the song and I listened to it my ears perked up when I heard Here Comes the Sun and I thought of that person that I'm describing, this person who is a, who's a beginner songwriter and they say, well, wait a minute, he took that lyric from George Harrison, like, don't you have to get permission to take someone else's lyric when it's such a high-profile song? So just explain to the audience how that works in terms of what you did with that. Absolutely. So, well, first of all, uh, you're absolutely right, and for all the aspiring songwriters out there, when you use a lyric and a theme from a song, a hook, you you now are basically giving credit and partial, you know, uh, ownership. And I knew that going in. So, if I release the song commercially and sell it and start making money from it, that's it. Or if it ends up on a any kind of a play anywhere where it might generate income, that income has to be divided. Um, if there is a writer's and publisher's income, which you get through your writer affiliation, your PRO, public right organization, BMI, ASCAP, uh, and the other associations around the world, their job is to collect that money. And so, for instance, as a songwriter, I've written many things in the past that have been in film and television, and I get checks every quarter for my writer's share and my publishing share. Now, the publishing share is not that much because that's the share of the pie that we tend to have to give away a lot of in order to get opportunities, but the writer's share is yours. So in this instance, if I release that song and it starts generating money, the writer's share will be split between myself whoever now owns the estate and the rights of William Barton, although I think that might now be in public domain. Okay. Um, and of course, Donnie Hathaway's estate. Yeah. And because I've written a portion, of it, a portion of it, I get a portion of it as well. So the PRO money would be split and the publishing right organizations take care of that. So when I do finally release the song officially, I will uh, register it with BMI and I will register all the writers that are involved with that, that, that wrote those pieces. Now, I created the music bed and the master recording. That's me singing, that's me playing, that's my master recording. I own that. So if I say submit that song, that track, and it ends up in in a film, and they pay me what's called the sync licensing fee to use the master, that's mine. But when money is collected on the writer and publisher side, that money is split between the writers and then goes to whoever holds the publishing in all those regards. So I hope that's clear for all you aspiring songwriters out there. Try to join a PRO as soon as you can. BMI, ASCAP are the two. They're the ones that represent us here in the United States. And, um, you know, you're going to want to be a writer, and then you're going to want to also create a publisher's side. And, uh, you know, it's a great way for aspiring writers to get involved in their community. If there's real talent there, if they've got something that's ready uh, to be heard in the larger scale of things in the public and the BMI and ASCAP think there's something really there. They will get behind that artist. 
they'll put them in writers rooms they'll you know help them to meet other people they do independent artist showcases and all kinds of things so really good idea to become a, a member of the pro yeah i'll support that 100 percent. the pros are very much your friend and you did a great job there ken thank you for educating everybody on those breakdowns like that so folks make sure you do your research and by all means you know if you're in it for the long haul absolutely join a pro i want to remind you there is an instagram account just for this podcast you can find it at now hear this entertainment it's literally at now hear this entertainment not not at but the at symbol on the day that ken and i are recording this interview i posted a funny picture of me by a clock and shared some nhte trivia about times that a couple interviews have gotten recorded i'm referring to the instagram post i've also put pictures on that account of the device i have here at the center of my recording rig it's small but powerful it's made by a company called centrance like the word entrance with a c at the beginning and there's one just like it called the mixer face which is for musicians it's an audio interface yes but it's also a portable handheld recorder so you can take it on the road with you This is also what you would use when you're live streaming. So it's great because you don't have to learn multiple pieces of gear for all those different applications. Plus, this is not an overly complicated device that you need to take so much time learning that you get frustrated and put it back in the box. Probably best of all, though, are the professional quality preamps, which is what gives my show the tremendous studio quality sound that any musician would want for their recording or streaming projects. Centrance has been kind enough to extend an offer to listeners of this show. And this applies to you as well, podcasters who want to buy the version that they make for us. On my show website, nhte.net, tap or click on the Mixerface ad, which on desktop is in the right-hand column, or on mobile, you can scroll way down to access it. And then once you land on their page, Centrance is going to give you free U.S. shipping. And when you put in the code BRUCE, they're going to give you a free watertight accessory case to carry the unit in. Ken, let's start rolling up our sleeves here with the many, many roles that you've had, the numerous hats that you've worn. Somewhat recent news, I'm holding up air quotes, somewhat recent news, and I, this I believe coincided with the start of the pandemic, was ending your long run with Ambrosia, which I alluded to in the intro. Wow, something like 15 years with them. As much as you've done that we're going to be talking about during this interview, that has to be a real highlight, I imagine, what with that longevity. It does. It, it, it is. It's definitely, uh, you know, being a, a member of the band um, and touring for all those years with them was definitely a major highlight. And it, it, it definitely was schooling for me. I look at all the opportunities that I have working with any artist or any group of people, and I look at that as the opportunity for me to grow and learn and expand. And just to clarify the timeline, I was actually with them from about 2006 to 2008 and a half. Then I left, and I know we'll get to some other things you brought up. Uh, Some other things came up in my career opportunities. Uh, Then I came back to them in 2013 and then i was with them until the pandemic yeah it was an incredible experience um you know when i was with michael or elton i was a band member but i was a background singer um and with ambrosia i was a frontman joe puerta 
one of the founding members, the bass player, and also one of the vocalists, original vocalists. He also sang lead on songs as well. But he was tied to the microphone playing the bass. For me, I played acoustic guitar on, you know, a bunch of songs, but a lot of the time I had the freedom to take my mic and, you know, rule the stage <laughs> and connect with the audience and oftentimes go out into the audience. Uh, I played percussion as well uh, when I was with them. And it really gave me an opportunity to raise my performance skills to a much higher level. I mean, I, I, prior then, I, I performed for, you know, a lot of people in a lot of situations. So by no means was I a novice or had I not had a lot of experience. And even prior to all that, had many years in the beginning of my career, when I used to put bands together and play around town to build up my repertoire and meet other people in the industry, invite people out, and just be out there playing and keeping my chops up. So I led bands for many years and was in front of audiences often. But to be at the level where you're performing and you're fronting a five-time Grammy-nominated band like Ambrosia um, and singing those kind of songs, I will say that pound for pound, um, it's, it was some of the most demanding singing I've ever had to do. Mm. So, you know, it was it was a real gift in so many different ways. Um, I was allowed to bring my own voice and my own sensibility to the material, which was wonderful. And, you know, the band are just, they're all wonderful, wonderful, beautiful people and good-hearted and amazingly talented people. And so, you know, it was, it was very enriching. But by the time the pand when the pandemic hit, you know, I had things run their course. And um, I'm one of these people that's not afraid to leave. I don't know why I'm not, uh, it's just part of me, for instance, and I know we'll circle back on it, but when, when I was with Elton John, I elected to leave that band as well. Hmm. And we can go into that later. Um, when the pandemic hit, the, the, obviously the calendar was clear for the foresee cleared for the foreseeable future. And I had wanted to move on. I wanted to make room for new opportunities, even though I was fronting the band, um, and we were trying to write and record material. Um, it wasn't going the way I had hoped, and I'm sure I know they were a little bit frustrated with it too. And I just needed to, it had run its course for me. Mm -hmm. So it was the perfect time because I was like, when am I going to do this? You know, it's how would I do this and not, you know, make a serious hardship for everybody and, uh, and potentially for myself. Yeah. And um, it was the perfect timing. And I did. And and everything worked out. Everything worked out. So a very dear friend of mine, an amazing talent, Kip Lennon, is out on the road with them when he's not in his own band, Venice, touring, who are amazing. And then Rick is back with the band as well. He, he'll go back out with them as well on guitar and sing as well. So there you go. <laughs> well, and for the audience, I want you to pick up on a couple of things that Ken said in there. And yes, he's right. We are going to come back around and we are going to talk about him being in the Elton John band. So he said that he was a band member there, but he made the distinction of what it was 
in terms of his role while he was with Ambrosia. I want to refer you back. Go back if you never heard it, folks. Two months ago on episode 415, Don Carr, he was my guest. He toured as the lead guitarist for the legendary Oak Ridge Boys for 23 years. And he did spend a lot of time, just as I know Ken's going to be doing on this episode, Don spent a lot of time kind of defining what some of those different roles are that one can have in the music industry and what the difference is between, as you just heard Ken say, being a band member versus in this case with Ambrosia, he was very much more out front, very much more a vocalist and, and things that we're going to be hearing as we go along. We've already had the the teaching moment earlier on where you talked, Ken, about a writer's share and publishing and things like that. Talk about being a session singer, meaning Maybe some highlights that stand out as far as work you've done that way, but then also educating the audience on what that role is and why it can be something really good instead of just focusing on, I want to be a famous singer who's a household name and tours all over. <laughs> well, my answer to that is be careful what you wish for. <laughs> people think people have no idea what that really means. And there are very, there's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage of human beings on this planet that are truly built for that. And it's not because it's not just about talent because there are countless, 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 countless people all across this planet that are incredibly talented, amazing singers, musicians that have the potential to be amazing and step out and be stars. But there is a cost and there is a heavy commitment that one must make and it plays it plays a lot of havoc in your life. It's a very difficult lifestyle and it doesn't leave a lot of room for a lot of the things that we reflect on as a normal life. And there's a reason why most marriages and families suffer and oftentimes don't make it. And the person that's touring the superstar or the person in the band superstar, they're never there to raise their kids or be in the relationship with their partner. It's very hard. It's a very, very hard life. And then when you're out on the road, you live a, in a fairy tale in certain ways. In other words, you don't depending on who you're touring with and what the level <laughs> is. And then when you're home, it's like you have to shift these gears back to, quote-unquote, normal everyday life. And it's extremely hard. It's extremely hard. Touring at any level is exhausting. So, you know, being a session singer, um, being a session singer is kind of a different thing. That's, you know, that's where you are behind the scenes. You're singing on records, films, television backing up bands you're touring as the side person to an artist these are all different forms of being a session singer you know I, I could definitely say that when i was in the elton john band that was not my music i mean i was a band member but in a certain way i was a session singer i wasn't out promoting my records and my music so i look at that as an, another way that a session singer can go it's a lot of work like anything else in this world, if you want to be really successful at it, you have to invest a tremendous amount of time and you have to have a very strong discipline to develop the kind of relationships that you need in order to have a sustainable career because it is not just about the talent. It's simply not. And one of the reasons I've had a career for 30 plus years, not that I've done it perfectly, not that I can't be a pain in the ass sometimes, but by and large, I would say I've handled my business pretty well. Now, in the beginning, I made some mistakes. I made some 
some, uh, you know, freshman errors that were embarrassing. Mm -hmm. But I learned, you know, I learned along the way. And you learn these unwritten rules on how you relate to different people in the business, whether you're working for producers or songwriters. In each situation, there's kind of unwritten rules and ways that you need to handle yourself when you're, say, in a recording studio or, say, you're singing on the Grammys or Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the Jay Leno show, you know, it's a nice show. And they've sung on all these shows, and they all have, there's a certain way that you have to bring yourself to it. And there's a certain way that you have to bring yourself to your career um, when you're working with people that are hiring you to breathe life into their song. They are wanting you, uh, whether it's going to go directly onto a record or say it's a Diane Warren who you're working for to demo her song for an artist that she's pitching her song to or the myriad of other songwriters that I worked for through the years, professional, professional songwriters. They're handing a lot to you. They've taken the time to write a beautiful song, but that beautiful song is just going to sit on a tape recorder or a CD recorder or whatever, unless it gets cut by an artist. I mean, that's it's got to get there. It's got to get on a record. And they're really expecting. There's so much that you have to bring to the table that they expect you to have developed and know how to sell that song. Um, depending on the artist, depending on the style. And the same thing is true if you're working for, say, a commercial producer who is saying, trying to pitch um, a piece of music for, for a commercial, for a product, for whatever it might be. Again, they're looking to you to help breathe a life, an energy, a character, a feeling that hits the target that the client is looking for. So it is, you learn these things doing it again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> Hopefully you're around. I got to be around some extraordinarily talented singers and, you know, songwriters and record and commercial producers all through the years. And each time I was there, I was always a sponge. Mm. I'm all, I'm just watching. I'm, I'm there singing, but I'm watching and I'm listening. And, and uh, for anybody aspiring to be a session singer, <laughs> learn to listen. Learn to show up as a professional. That means that means you don't sit on your phone all the time. I got to tell you, uh, there are a lot of I, I'm I'm a person that gets to hire people a lot, mm-hmm. and you know, as a vocal arranger, and there are a lot of very talented young people out there that I simply won't hire because mm. they don't know they they've grown up thinking that the world is okay with them sitting on their phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no, no. Leave put that turn that thing off, put it in your purse, put it in your bag, leave it in the car. Leave it in the car, be present. If you want to look at it, look at it when you go to the bathroom, but when you're in that booth, when you're in the session, be present. Listen, learn, connect. Um, if you want your your career to expand, constantly be present. You think you know everything, and that's, boy, I remember there were times I thought I did, <laughs> and I felt myself getting really cocky. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I learned the hard way. I said, oh, shit, <laughs> I should have been paying attention. There were a lot of things that I could have walked away, not just to singing on something in a paycheck. There's so much more going on. Yeah. There's developing relationships. There's watching how the producers interact with the uh, creative energy agency that they're working for 
and the clients. There's all these things. It just goes on and on. So, you know, if you if you're aspiring vocalists in this business, you're going to have to work your ass off. You're going to have to really work hard on your gift and be very devoted to the craft. And you're going to have to get out there and sing a lot. And when you get those opportunities, be present, be mature, listen, be respectful, be ready, be prepared. And, uh, yeah. So, Well, and I want to add to that, you know, when you mentioned about being present, it's not only doing your absolute best for that job that you're hired to do, but it's remembering that this could lead to them hiring you for something else. So that's how important it is. That's how much you're being watched, that it's not, okay, let me get through this. This is something that I got and I need the money. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're going to see through that a mile away. A mile away. And, and you know, I have this little anecdote when I do master classes, and people will ask me, how did you get the Michael Jackson tour the michael jackson gig and i always i call it the 10-year audition (laughs) and the reason i call it the 10-year audition is for 10 years uh i prior to that moment i was uh had become very close friends with dorian holly and daryl finnessy who had toured many times before with michael well we had become great friends. We started working together. We were hiring each other on on sessions. We were spending time socially. And for, for about 10 years, Daryl and Dorian got to see me not only as a singer, but they got to see me as a professional. They got to see me organize events that they came to and sang on. They got to see me as a human being and how I interact with other human beings. What, mm. what is my work ethic like? And if you're going to be out on the road for potentially years, man, you better get along. <laughs> you better get along <laughs> with the people and like the people you're out on the road with. Because that can be a very lonely place when you sound very <laughs> uncomfortable. So they knew for 10 years they watched me. And they worked with me, and we had developed a close friendship. And, you know, the story goes, you know, uh, Dorian had told me they had already auditioned Judith Hill. She was already in the band, and they were looking for that fourth singer. And at some moment in time, they knew that they needed that fourth singer, and Dorian and Daryl turned to each other, and they said they simultaneously said, Ken. Wow, wow. And not and, and it's not because I was the best singer or the best. You know, I don't look at there. There are people out there that can sing me under the table, and and at that moment in time knew more about Michael Jackson than I could ever imagine and knew his material. It's casting. It's exactly what you yeah. said a moment ago. It's relationships. Yeah, and it's intangibles. That's what they saw in you. That's why they looked at each other and said Ken because it's the intangibles. They yes. Let's not overlook the fact that they absolutely knew for a fact. Of course he can sing. Of course he can sing. This is Michael Jackson. We are not going to bring somebody forward just because they're a nice guy or just because they're organized or because of their look. He certainly has a great voice, but they saw everything they needed to see to feel confident because their name is on it going forward and saying, this is who we should add. That's right. And that's another thing you just brought up. Their name is on it. So remember aspiring musicians and vocalists and, you know, remember that when somebody like myself, right, who is, you know, I say myself because having been in this business now for so many years, I'm now in the position which I honor and respect 
and take very seriously that if I'm going to uh, recommend somebody, especially somebody new coming up in the business, I love doing that. I love bringing new talent into the stream of creativity that's all around us here in our business. But remember, I have to, when I recommend you, I'm putting my good name, the good, the good face of my name on the, behind that recommendation. So you better believe I'm going to make sure I'm going to do my due diligence to make sure that you are not you, you, you don't just carry the the talent quote unquote because talent I could I can step outside my studio and throw a rock and hit somebody with talent. <laughs> you better believe that I'm looking for people that are have the emotional, mental maturity to stand in the heat, know how to be present, know how to be a grown up in the room, know how to listen, participate, be respectful, show up on time, you know, all the myriad of things that are essential. Uh, to being successful and in this business nobody has time to waste they're not looking to waste time they don't you know they're they're looking for people that are talented professional fun to be around efficient and get the job done you know so yeah well while we're talking about some of the things that you mentioned, I know the audience loves hearing the glamorous stories. So talk to me first just about Michael Jackson and having been a part of his This Is It band. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for asking that one. Um, yeah, well, I would say, first and foremost, I'm not going to deny that there isn't a certain glamour. That's a very interesting word, glamour. Let me rephrase that. There is something, there's something illuminating in the experience. There's something mm. um, in, deeply enriching. And yes, people see the packaged part of it. They see the part that's on MTV or the myriad of shows or the, the concerts or the specials. They see right. all the stuff. They see, you know, we talk about how when you look at an iceberg, you see 10% of it above water, but 90% of it is below, mm, right? Yeah. That 10%, that's the glamour. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's the glamour. That's the, that's the shine. That's the sheen. That's the ooh. The rest of it down below is blood, sweat, and tears, hard-ass work, sitting through countless hours on your ass, waiting for the, your moment to sing that may only last seconds. It's you have to. You're you're like an athlete. So, so with Michael, first of all, what an honor it was um, that Dorian and Daryl thought of me and asked me to be a part of it, and I'm that sure. Michael uh, agreed to have me be a part of it as well. And I'm sure I I really singing with Judith and and Daryl and Dorian was absolutely one of the highlights of my life and my career. And. Um, it was a very egalitarian experience. It was like we, we would go song to song, and it wasn't you're the soprano, you're the tenor, you're the that. We would flip parts up and down and around, wow. right and left, until each song was the right mix. Wow. Sometime I'd be on soprano with Judith. Sometimes she'd be down like in what we call the baritone area. We we constantly flip parts around waiting for the right blend to that song. So let, let me interrupt you because I'm curious. Were the four of you flipping those around yourself? Was Michael doing it? Was there a musical director that was doing it? Who was initiating those changes? Very good question. Uh, Dorian Hawley was the leader of the section. So he was the vocal leader. 
that said, when we first started working together, we'd get together at Dorian's house, and we'd just all sit around with our computers and around, you know, the CD, and we'd go over a song. Dorian would guide us, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, he would initiate, okay, Ken, try that, you try that, blah, 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 Daryl, Judith, okay, now, how's that sound? Then we'd all listen, then we'd try it another way, then we'd try it another way. And by the time we had flipped it all around on that song, we finally decided there's the blend. That's great. Killer. So, you know, it, it was it was Dorian was leading the group. And then Dorian always being Dorian, you know, uh, he wanted us all to be feel empowered. And we all had a voice mm. and we all talked about it and we all shared our thoughts. And um, and in the end, it wasn't about any individual. It was about how are we going to make this section sound phenomenal over the song? Because Michael deserves that. Because this is Michael Jackson. Yeah. And it's worthy of this level of selflessness. It's, it wasn't about me. I, maybe I wanted a certain part in a song. But if it sounded better with Dorian or Daryl or Judith, then so be it. Yeah, and that's, that's okay. Right. It wasn't about me. Yeah, that's right. And I, it makes me think of my interview with Chad Jeffers, who is the guitar player for Carrie Underwood. And he talked about that very dynamic that you're talking about insofar as he said, and this is a quote from that episode, he says, as a professional musician, you're in the service business. You're there to help the artist, whatever they need. You're there to help facilitate that. And that's what you're saying. As much as you might want to say, hey, I like this song, or I think my voice can really shine on this song, you're there for Michael. You're not there for Ken. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's very, yeah, I love that. And, and to be quite frank with you, one of the things I learned in Ambrosia is that it took me a while to figure this out, but when I finally figured it out, it was a game changer for me. We're always in the service business, and even when I was fronting the band, I was in service of the song and the audience. So when I finally came around to it, I realized I'm not here to sing my ass off and get people to, oh my God, Ken, I'm here to stand on stage accept and take ownership of the the gift that I was blessed with and, and that I've worked so hard to nurture and that people were in front of me needing an experience. And so what, what happened was I began to shift my purpose. I discovered my purpose and the purpose was not accolades. The purpose was to be a conduit and the purpose was to move energy through my authenticity, through my vulnerability and, you know, the masterful uh, nature of how we want to be when we're performing and share that and spread that over the audience. Let it land on people as it will. But that was my job. I love it. My job was to move energy. Not And, and it wasn't, I wasn't in charge of how it landed on people because that's not up to me. But I was in charge or responsible, as, as it were, to be that conduit and move that energy. And I, I love that because I think at the end of the day, if we can come to that state where we are all in the service business, we really are, it can improve every facet of our lives. It's not easy, always easy to do, but if I, if I can hold that in my mindset, whether it's in my work, my relationship with my wife, my kids, my friend, whatever it's going to be, I think that that makes, you know, that, that allows me to feel a greater a greater sense of the purpose in whatever I'm doing. I love so it. I like that. I like, yeah. I yeah. like what, what, uh, what he said. 
Well, I definitely have to have you talk also about touring and recording with another member of Absolute Music Royalty, which is Elton John. Yeah, yes. Yes. Well, Elton, Elton, Elton. I mean, boy, oh boy. Uh, there's so much to that story, just as much as there's so much to Michael's story. And I didn't even finish, you know, I, just to say and add what it was like with Michael real quick, and then I'll move over yeah. to that, um, because I think it's germane. One of the things that I loved about Michael was his generosity. He wanted everybody to shine. So, for instance, you know, when you're touring in a big production like that, if you listen to those records, all those backgrounds are multi-tracked. There are layers of backgrounds. It's not possible for four singers singing live, no matter how good they are, to pull off the depth, the power, and all the things that have to go on in the vocal arrangement. Hmm. So you have to still have what are called pre-records. Well, you know, Michael had all his pre-records, and he was singing them. But he was so generous with us that he allowed us to replace all those pre-records with us. Mm. So that what you're hearing in that in the in the movie is us and Michael. And that was the guy the kind of guy he was and he wanted he gave everybody that opportunity in the band. He wanted everybody to shine and it was so beautiful. And his work ethic was beyond anything I've ever seen ever. Wow. And probably will ever see in my life. Wow. It, it was, I don't even know how he sustained it, um, but, you know, as long as he could. Um, and it's it's a tragic story, and talking about his demise is a whole other episode. But, um, you know, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. The band members, beautiful people um, sharing that experience, those beautiful young dancers. Everybody just just poured their heart and soul into the entire experience and production. So Elton, you know, Elton, there is something, I guess the word that comes to mind immediately is majestic. Mm. I have dreams, very interesting about the way life works. I remember when I was a little boy and there was a dark period in my life and I used to, at nighttime, I would pull the blankets over my head and I would put my pillows all around and I'd make this big black void that would be like a, a, a screen in a movie theater mm -hmm. where the movie's about to come on, mm -hmm. where I could escape. And one of the things I used to dream and escape and project on that was being in the Jackson 5. <laughs> <laughs> and all those years later, I ended up being, being in Michael Jackson's mm -hmm. band. Now, I had a similar experience later on in my life my father lived up in Washington, and he had this incredible record collection, really wonderful old Moran stereo that sounded incredible. And, you know, back when everybody had records and all the record artwork, well, one of the records he had was Elton John of the Round Dirt Cowboy. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the record cover, I mean, it's just like, holy crap, there's so much imagery yeah. in there. <laughs> and I would just be lost for hours looking at that while I played that record over and over and mm. over again. And I would look out the window that he had, that he and, and Dolly, my stepmother, had uh, looking out into the forest because they had a lot of forest around them there, and I would listen to the music. And that whole era of music, Hart and um, Elton and Pink Floyd and all these incredible records that he had. And um, But that one in particular, and I remember something about it really spoke to me. I can't tell you. I know it stuck with me. I know it, there was a vibration. 
like it was a it was a foretelling not that i knew that at the time Mm -hmm. and the same thing was true i gotta tell you with heart and when when we were touring with elton we were up at the tacoma dome and i was i had such a massive crush on Ann Wilson <laughs> when I was a kid and listened to those records. And all these years later, and, and learned a lot about singing because, especially back then, I'm a lyric tenor, so I sing very high. And, um, you know, I used to be able to sing along with those heart records, and I would ah. learn a lot that, that singing to it. And the emotion that she brought and, and the framework of the song, all the things that were there. And uh, when I got the chance to meet her at the Tacoma Dome, she came out to watch us. And I look back on my life in those moments that that I remember, and I can see a line. I can see a connection. Mm. And it makes me believe in my heart that there's, there's a path. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I was willing to leave. You know, when I was with Elton, we toured for a couple of years. We did the face-to-face tour with... uh, Billy Joel and his band, and what a hoot that was. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we did the, you know, we did uh, the Greatest Hits Live one night only at Madison Square Gardens. So, you know, that's a part of posterity that I get to be a part of, which was a mind-boggling experience. That that was incredible because I want to give you a perspective. Prior to Elton, the only touring experience I had, not that it was nothing, it was incredible. In 1999, I got hired to be a background singer and a percussionist of all things with Bobby Caldwell. Ah. A very dear friend of mine, Mark McMillan, was his keyboard MD, and they needed another background vocalist, and they were losing their um, percussionist. And when they said, can you play percussion? I said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So there I was playing percussion with Bobby Caldwell and singing backgrounds. And it was such an incredible experience. And what an incredible, incredible performer. And we toured all through Japan. And I would often be five feet from him on these stages, just watching his spit fly out into the air and the lights (laughs) on him and the smoke. And I would just listen to that voice and watch this consummate, performer professional Mm. and i would learn every night was going to school that said you know we might have played in front of if we did a festival with other acts there would be a few thousand people but most of the time you know three five hundred four hundred that kind of thing yeah all of a sudden in 2000 i get the word i get the offer to basically join, which is a story. I mean, this is so worth telling, and I know we don't have tons of time, but it's a quick story. About a year and a half before I was in the Elton John band, I was looked at. Billy Trudell, who was singing uh, with Elton, Billy and I knew each other, and they wanted another background singer to come in as well. But unbeknownst to me, they'd also lost their percussionist. So... They were looking for a background singer. He introduced me to Davy Johnstone. Davy and I became close, you know, became good friends very quickly. Mm. He's such a beautiful human being. And he's so kind. And it looked like I was going to get the gig. But um, in the 12th hour, um, it went to a very dear friend of mine, John Mahan, Mahon, who, who also a beautiful singer and an incredible drummer and percussionist. So it was the right time. He got the gig. It was great. But that's when Davy and I formed a relationship, and then Davy would hire me on sessions. And he said, if anything ever comes around again, would you be interested? I'm like, well, yeah. So about a year and a half went by, and he reaches out to me and says, listen, 
Ken, we're about to go out and promote the Road to El Dorado soundtrack that, you know, Elton John and Tim Rice wrote all the music for. Mm-hmm. And we need another singer. Would you like to come out? I was like, oh, my God. Well, that led, we did that promo tour, which is a whole story within itself. <laughs> I, I can't even begin to tell you. It's just, it, it's just, it's extraordinary. I didn't meet, at, we, we rehearsed for like two and a half months, and I never met Elton until show day at the wow. um, Venetian Room up in the Fillmore Hotel up in San Francisco. Wow. There was a song called 16th Century Man on the soundtrack that, that was just Elton and me singing tight thirds all the way through top to bottom. And when we sound checked, he completely changed it. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, I'm, can I swear on this program? I'll say I'm blanked. (laughs) And, uh, and baby said something to him and I had no idea what was going to happen. And I was terrified and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to blow this on national television in front of all these friends. I mean, there was the who's who of people there. Hmm. Plus NBC, CBS, MTV, everything. And, um, Ellen came back down and sang, sang it just like the record, and it was great. It was fun, <laughs> great fun. But it was those kind of experiences, those things that really shaped me and really helped me decide whether I had the courage and the faith to keep going. Because in that moment, I was, you know, becoming so overcome with, with anxiety and fear. It's like, what in God's name is going to happen? They're not going to point at Elton. They're going to point at the idiot background singer that's destroying the song. <laughs> So I literally went in the corner, and I didn't want the anxiety to t- get me, so I went and started shadow boxing. I've never done that before in my life, Bruce. Wow. Never. It just, it, it, something said, I got to hmm. get this out. And then in that, I found my strength, and the strength was this. Look, if I'm going down, I'm going down swimming. <laughs> I'm going to go out there and sing my ass off. And if they're the wrong parts, I'm going to sing those wrong parts better than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and it all worked out. It was great. And I think so much of our careers are like that. There's ups and downs and everything you think is going to happen doesn't happen the way you think. And all the plans get changed and shifted and it's constant. It's just, since you have to have a, a very strong, strong, constitution to stay in this business for for a long time and and keep going to the ups and downs but um to kind of finish out the elton story um you know did the record tour did the billy elton tour it was amazing just a beautiful experience uh, of the highest level the greatest music ever written um but after a couple of years there was there was an incident that i won't get into but there was a loss by one of the band members, a tragic, tragic loss when we were all out on the road in Chicago. And I had never toured at that level before, mm-hmm. and I was gone all the time. And part of the, the, the only time I was really happy was the two and a half hours on stage. Mm. And I just, you know, I, I just was on the fence. I was really having a struggle uh, seeing this as my life because. It was going great. I got along great with Elton. We had a great blend. Cliffy, his sound man, said we sounded the best it's ever sounded since the original band. Hmm. I played acoustic guitar. I, you know, Davy and I were tight. I knew, you know, Bob Birch, the bass, the bassist, was in my original band years ago. I knew all the band members. I mean, we were close. 
So it is reasonable to, to say I would have been a lifer and I would have been there my entire career. Wow. Wow. But something was not, it just, I don't know, it wasn't sitting well with me. And when there was this loss, horrible loss, it shook me up and it made me realize, Ken, wherever you are, you're making a compromise. If you're out on the road, mm. you're not somewhere else. You're not with your family. Wow. You're not with your friends. If you have kids, you won't be with your kids. You better be damn sure that you're, that, that, that um, compromise is worth it. And the answer at that time for me was no, it's not. Wow. And so when we came off the road and finished that tour, I, I left. And it was one of the hardest things I had to do. It was heartbreaking on a lot of levels, but it was understood and, you know, and it made room for other aspects of my career as a session singer, as a songwriter, as a producer, and then getting the gig with Ambrosia, which then put me in the front, you know, yep. of a band like yep. that. So each thing has its, has its life and sometimes you're meant to stay there a lifetime and sometimes you're meant to move on. And for me, uh, it was to move on. And there was a word that you used earlier on in our conversation that is fitting here because you said not everybody is built to be out on the road touring for a career. And so that's exactly what that is a callback to because you listen, audience, to everything that Ken just described and all those factors, if you're at that maturity level, you do sit and look at it all and say, yes, on the outside, this looks like a dream position to be in. And to some extent, on the inside, it is. I can see it's a dream position to be in. However, and you fill in the blanks as Ken just did, and you realize that decisions like that have to be made. But if your heart is in the right place, if you have the work ethic, if you're a professional, if you're talented, you see the doors that it ends up opening anyways. I want to do a little bit of housekeeping here because Ken mentioned a few artists that relate to past episodes of this podcast. Ken mentioned heart. And way back on episode 86, my guest was Roger Fisher, the founding guitarist of Heart. He also mentioned Billy Joel. Mike Del Judas has been a guest twice on this show. He is a singer and plays guitar with Billy Joel right now on tour. Carl Fisher, who plays trumpet with Billy Joel, he's been on this show. And also, uh, you heard the name Bobby Caldwell, who I've always been a big fan of. Uh, back on episode 257, my guest was Mick Mahan, who was actually best known for being the bass player for Pat Benatar, but he worked at, actually as an arranger uh, with, with Bobby Caldwell. So I'm going to put links to all of those interviews on the show page for Ken's episode on NHTE.net. I'm going to give some plugs out here for Ken, and then we're going to do something very unique that's only been done once in the eight-year history of the show. So let me do the reset first and say that I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Los Angeles by vocalist, songwriter, guitar player, producer, vocal arranger, artist, mentor, and vocal coach, Ken Stacy. Visit his official website at kenstacy.com. I will put a link to his website on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. On his website, you will see links to find Ken on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also follow him on Spotify as well. And there is a contact form on KenStacy.com if you're looking to get in touch. As you'll hear us talking about in the second part of this interview, he does a lot of private coaching if that's a fit. So stay tuned to hear about that work that he does. I mentioned this last week, and I feel it bears repeating. I'm always talking about the work that I do with music clients. But if you or someone you know needs, wants help with podcasting, 
I have been doing quite a bit of that for some time now. I'd actually even posted an article about this on the website. Beginner, intermediate, advanced, whatever level you're at, take advantage of my having been podcasting every week for more than eight years now. I do private one-on-one online video consultations with people from all over, helping them with their podcast journey. Email me through podcast at nhte.net and let's book time to get online together and talk about the show that you're doing or would like to do. Now, I'm going to do something that's only been done once in the history of this show, which is way back in the first year. And the reason I did it then is because it was only episode 39 and I didn't have the kind of control that I do now. I'm doing it this time because this is such a fascinating guest and there's so much great content that Ken has already given us and he's going to give us even more. I'm going to actually split this into a two-part episode. So we're going to wrap here for part one of the episode and Ken and I, the second part of our conversation will be released next week as part two and absolutely make sure that you come back for that next week because Ken is going to talk more about things that will help you if you're an aspiring performer. I'm going to ask him to talk about when he was an American Idol first-line judge. There will be some good advice coming from him that way. We're going to talk about a very, very, very high-profile legendary artist who he's coaching these days, and we're also going to play a song on that part of the interview that he actually produced for another artist. So right now I'm going to say thank you for listening to part one of the interview with Ken Stacy, and be sure to come back next week for part two. 